Well, it was the same year that World War I ended, 1918, when a woman by the name of Helen Lamell was in London and her friend handed her a gospel tract, and the tract was named Focused. And in the tract, there were these words. So then, turn your eyes upon him, look full into his face, and you will find that the things of earth will acquire a strange new dimness. Now, these words are probably pretty familiar for a fair few of us, aren't they? They're, of course, the words that gave birth to that beautiful hymn, The Heavenly Vision, or we might know it as Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. Helen, she later commented on reading this tract. She said, Suddenly, as if commanded to stop and listen, I stood still, and singing in my soul and spirit was the chorus, with not one conscious moment of putting word to word to make rhyme or note to note to make melody. And so we have this wonderful hymn, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus, today, which has, of course, led thousands and thousands of Christians to be refocused on Jesus Christ, to look full into his wonderful face. Now, this morning, I not only want us to be refocused on Christ, but I want to reorientate us to the book of Mark because it's been exactly seven weeks, seven weeks since we were in the book of Mark, and so a lot might have gone by, and so let me uh, recap for us a little bit. Um, The book of Mark is neatly divided, you could say, into two halves, two halves. The first half focuses on the identity of Christ. It begins by saying the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, And then it goes on from there until finally we heard Pastor Andrew preach to us saying that Peter, the Apostle Peter, finally got it. And when Jesus asked, who do you say that I am? Peter said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then there's a turn. There's a turn in the book of Mark from that moment on. The identity of Christ has been made known to his disciples. But the turn then is that Jesus speaks to his disciples and he says to them, from now on, I'm going to try and teach you something. You understand who I am now, but I am now going to suffer and die at the hands of the chief priests, scribes, Pharisees in Jerusalem. I've got work to do. You understand who I am. That's the first part. But now I've got work to do. And so the second half of Mark is all about that, the work of Jesus Christ, what he came to do. Now, the same thing, those two, those two things, is what we see here happening in the mountain of transfiguration in just like a miniature form, and I want you to see this. It's like up the mountain and down the mountain. So up the mountain, we get a bunch of details. Look with me in the text, we're just going to roar through it, that Jesus has come up and he's transfigured before them. He's, he's bright as the sun. He's white like light. And this should, in the mind of anyone who knows the scriptures, like Peter and James and John, they should be thinking, this is Psalm 104. O Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a garment. We, in fact, sung those words this morning. But then... Read on. It says that there appeared uh, to them also Elijah and Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And then we get this cloud that comes over the mountain and envelops the whole situation. And then the Father speaks from heaven and he says, This 
is my beloved son. Listen to him. Elijah represents the prophets. That is, all the prophets from the Old Testament and the writings of the prophets. He represents that. Moses represents the law of God, the first five books of the Old Testament, and all that that means. So here you have the, the, the establisher of the covenant, Moses, and the restorer of the covenant, Elijah. If you remember the story where he asked God to call down fire and to consume the, the offering that was on the altar, and all Israel then realized once more, ah, the Lord is God. The Lord is God. He was the great restorer of Israel's worship of the one true God. Here they are, these two men, and they are talking with Jesus. They're testifying to who Jesus is. And so when the Father finishes speaking, and it's Jesus only that's left in the sight of the disciples, we are all meant to understand, Peter, James, and John, we're all meant to understand this is the Son of God. It's all about his identity, this first half. Up the mountain, identity of Christ. This is who he is. But then we go down the mountain. It goes on saying, and as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus charged them not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. It's talking about his work, what he's got to do, what he's still yet to accomplish. And then it goes on. They ask him about Elijah and they ask, well, why do the scribes say that Elijah has to come first and, and restore all things? And Jesus is basically saying in his response, when he, he answers them about Elijah quickly, but then he says, but how's it written of the Son of Man? What he's trying to do there is to say, all right, you've, you're focused on Elijah still, you got, you got that, but how's it written of the Son of Man? You know that Elijah has to come. Do you understand what the Son of Man has to do? It's all about his work. Up the mountain, identity. Down the mountain, his work. That's what the uh, text is doing in like a nutshell. But if I were to just slap those two things together, the identity of Christ and the work of Christ, if I were to just give you one word that I think encapsulates all of that, it is the word transfiguration. Transfiguration. When the personhood of Christ meets the work of Christ. Transfiguration. And that's what I want to talk to us this morning about because we have a heavenly vision here. But Christ didn't come just to give us a big heavenly vision in the mountain of transfiguration just to show off, just to say, look how good I am. Christ always does things for the sake of his people. And we're the beneficiaries of uh, reading this text and so it's for us. It's written down for us. He wants to Show us his glory that we, his people, might share in his glory. Transfiguration. Now I want to lay a bit of context as well for us before we dive into that word. Jesus, as we saw from what Andrew preached a few weeks back, seven weeks back, he's um, been teaching the crowds that they, if they're going to follow him, they must take up their own cross, deny themselves, and then they can follow him. But now he's taken his most trusted disciples, his inner three disciples, up the mountain. And then, of course, he's transfigured. Elijah and Moses disappear. And then all that to say, this amazing sight, well then, on their way back down, after Jesus tells them to not tell them anything, we need to ask the question, why? Why is it then in secret? 
all this up and down business, why was it done in secret and not openly and amongst the crowds? And I think here's the reason. Christ does not want us, he doesn't want anyone to misunderstand or to separate his identity from his work. He doesn't want anyone to misconstrue that, to think that you can have the glory of Christ but not the suffering. They go together. And that's why he's done this in secret away from the crowds so that his most trusted disciples can hold on to that and be witnesses of this transfiguration. And so Christ himself, he willingly submitted to the principle of transfiguration so that all of us who now follow in his footsteps might understand how we are to live. It's practical. It is practical. The transfiguration teaches us how we are now to live. And it's by the same principle. That in light of the Son of God, it's only from death that true life can come. He showed us his glory because ultimately he wants us to share in his glory. But we can only do that if there's transfiguration. So the three points that I want to look at that word for us this morning are these. I want, to, I want to talk firstly about the principle of transfiguration. I want to talk about the perspective of a transfigurer. We need a transfigured perspective. And then the promise of total transfiguration. So firstly, the principle. God has scattered this principle all throughout creation. It's springtime now. And so right now we have a bunch of monarch caterpillars who are eating their little leaves and they're about to spin some cocoons. And then, of course, in about 5 to 17 days or so after that, they're going to come out as a beautiful monarch butterfly. It's springtime. Time for new life, new flowers, new leaves, new everything. We can see the principle of transfiguration all throughout creation. It's simply the principle of exchange that death brings life. From, from sorrow into joy, or from weakness into strength, or from suffering into glory. The word transfiguration itself simply means a change of form or appearance into a more beautiful state. And the original Greek word that we have here in the text is metamorpho. And of course, you can hear that word in there, can't you? This is where we get our word metamorphosis. Hence why I use the butterfly analogy. When we were kids, our, our parents taught us, didn't they? Butterflies, they metamorph metamorphosize. This is what it means to transfigure. But the good thing about it is that it doesn't just imply a change from one thing into another, but also a change from one thing into a glorious thing, a special thing. There's a movement. It goes from bad to better or from bad to, to really, really good. This is what transfiguration is. And so when we uh, see Jesus coming up the mountain now and he's transfigured before Peter, James, and John, we read then that his clothes become radiant, intensely white. His face shines like the sun. The divine nature of Jesus is coming through, through his physical body and is being apparent to all those who can witness it. But we find out from the context where the matter of exchange comes from. Where did, how did this happen? See, Jesus has told his disciples, as was mentioned, that from now on, I'm going to have to go 
with my face set toward Jerusalem and suffer and die at the hands of my people. And we learn from the Gospel of Luke that Jesus, when he went up to the mountain, he was praying. He brought his closest disciples to come and pray with him. And no doubt he was praying to God about that very thing, the suffering that he was about to face. It's not the only time, of course, that Jesus has taken his disciples, Peter, James and John, to a secluded place to pray. We know from the Garden of Gethsemane that Jesus did the very same thing. And there he sweat drops of blood in agony over the fact that he was about to drink the cup of God's wrath. And so here he is on the mountain and he's definitely distressed, he's, he's worried in a, in a way, but he's handing all that over in prayer to God. He's offering himself in obedience as a sacrifice already, knowing full well what has been told of him. And so it's out of this suffering, in this prayerful state, that the Lord God transfigures Jesus Christ. Now what has this got to do with us? What I want us to catch is that the same thing that happens to Christ can happen to us as the Lord leads. Do you have any fear right now? Have you come into this hall with fear, anxieties, worry, sorrow, shame? What have you come in with this morning? They're all low, low things. Well, God is a God of transfiguration. And if we would offer these things up to him in humble obedience and let go of it, say, God, you are a God of transfiguration. You can take this and turn it for your glory. So if you want to be used by God for his purposes, deny yourself. Let go of your own will and offer it to God. It says in Jeremiah chapter 31, this is God speaking, I will turn their mourning into joy. I will comfort them and give them gladness for sorrow. The great exchange, the principle of transfiguration. We can say to God, God, all I've got is stones. Turn them into bread. We can say to God, all I have is a small family business. We offer that up to God with total submission and say, use it for your glory. Lord, I'm weak. Here it is. Do something with it because I can't. And God can transfigure it into his strength for his glory. This is our God. See, great men and women of faith over the history you know, we can read their stories, we can read of the great things that they did, but when you get their biographies or their autobiographies, you read what really went on and they struggle and they wrestle. And they said, I'm weak, I'm so weak. I can't do a thing. And then you read about their prayers or whatever it is and, and you see within the prayer this principle of transfiguration. Take it, God, from me. And use it for your glory, I ask. That's the principle. 
the principle of exchange, and it's the principle that we see at the cross, isn't it? This is the foundation stone of Christian faith, is transfiguration. See, the men and women of faith, they all understood this thing, that unless a grain of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abides alone. But if it dies, it brings forth much fruit. That's the principle of transfiguration. We must die so that new life, true fruit, can come. But the reason why we might hold back from doing that is that we often lack a, uh, a heavenly perspective. We don't want to offer all these things to God because there's something still about us that, um, that doesn't want to let go. And I've labelled it a lack of a heavenly perspective. And so the second point this morning I want to look at is a transfigured perspective. Romans chapter 12, verse 2 says this, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That's the same word for transfiguration. Be transfigured by the renewal of your mind. See, there are three questions in our text that the disciples ask Jesus, and all of them shed a little light on where their perspective has gone wrong. The first question comes from from fear, and it's found in verses 5 and 6, if you'll look with me. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. You might get caught up on the tents, the three tents, one for my, what's Peter doing? I think you don't want to do that too much because the point is he didn't know what to say. The reason it doesn't make a lot of sense is because he didn't know what he was saying. He was terrified and he just wanted to offer, typical Peter just wanted to you know, jump into the awkward situation and try and break the ice by saying the first thing on his mind. And you see, this is a, a perspective that was uh, consumed by fear, the fear that he had right there in that moment, seeing the glory of Christ. The second uh, perspective that we can see that's wrong comes from verse 10, and this is a perspective that comes from the embarrassment of understanding. It says, after Jesus tells them not to speak of the matter, it says, they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. They Have you ever you know, when we were kids in the classroom, the teachers just, you know, written the uh, equation up on the board and uh, they say, everyone understand? And um, you're that kid in the back row and you're like, hmm, no, but no, I don't want to, it's that little awkward, you don't really want to put your hand up. This is what the disciples are like. Jesus just told them plainly, they don't understand, but because they're embarrassed in their understanding and there's a little bit of pride, they don't want to be the one to put their hand up and say, Jesus, what do you mean? And this can be like us as well. But the third thing comes from wrong expectations. And we see this in verse 11. It says, And they asked him, Why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? You see, because they've understood now that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, they're thinking about the prophecy of Malachi that says that Elijah will come before the great and awesome day of the Lord. And they're thinking, well, if you're the Messiah, well, then where's Elijah? Where he should be here, because he comes before the great and awesome day of the Lord. So what's up with that, Jesus? Their expectations are a little bit off. They've not understood that Jesus Christ will come first to suffer and to die, and that's what he says here. How's it written of the Son of Man? And then he will come again. 
to restore all things. Their perspectives are just a little bit off. Now, we probably don't have the same questions as the disciples because we have hindsight. We know what Jesus meant when he said that he's going to rise again from the dead. But our inner feelings, what we struggle and wrestle with are the same, the same things, fear. How we can fear offering our brokenness up to God on the altar and just saying to him, Lord, take my insecurities and transfigure them into your glory. We might struggle with embarrassment. How often is our perspective that unless we have all of our ducks in a row and can answer this question, this question, this question, then I won't speak the name of Jesus Christ. I'll just leave it alone. I won't do what I think I should do because I'm not equipped yet. I need to go and study more or something like that. It's a wrong perspective. and We need Christ's vision to change it. The last thing, false expectations. These come to us when we think that we know what the outcome of our life should look like. We go to work and we, we get our paycheck and we want to get a house and we want to have a good retirement, we want to give a good education to our kids and we want to just, you know, the picture-perfect life. But then what happens when tragedy strikes? Perhaps we lose a loved one. Where are we going to look? Will we have the perspective to say to God, Lord, this pain has come and it's evil in my eyes, but I know that you can turn it about for good. Well, this only happens if we have a transfigured perspective, a heavenly perspective. We're reminded in Hebrews chapter 11 that Abraham and Sarah, they were given many promises by God. And although they believed him, they died and they never received the promises of God. But it says in Hebrews 11 that they all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. But as it is, they desired a better country, that is, a heavenly one. They desired a heavenly country. By faith, they could see what they needed to see. They had a heavenly perspective. They knew that God was building for them a city with sure foundations. And it says we look by faith into what God has in store for all of his children, us, who are descendants, spiritual descendants of Abraham. It's when we look by faith that he enables us to offer him all of our unknowns. When we worry or stress because we don't know what's coming around the corner, we don't have control over this life. We are just so fickle. We're like grass, the Bible says. Here for one moment, and then the wind passes over it, and it's gone. And its place knows it no more. Our days are so few. We can't control our life. So by handing that over to God and saying, no matter what comes, in obedience, I want to give that over to you, put it on the altar, and say, Lord, there it is, my insecurities, ugliness, shame, it's all there. You take it and give me a transfigured perspective. As it says in Colossians chapter 3, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, 
seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on the things that are on the earth. And all of this is done in faith. Faith that Jesus is who he said he is, and he will do what he said he will do. But we all know how much we struggle with just that much, don't we? We're going to read next week about the man who said, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. This is us. Where's the faith? What do we do about all that? I think the answer is that all we ever really need to do is to look to Jesus. Look to Jesus and look again to Jesus. Peter, who was there on the mountain, he went on to record his experience on the mountain and he said, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. John, he was there and he said later on, we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. See, whenever our faith is failing, look to Jesus. Look at the glory. Look at his suffering. Look at his power. Look at his humility. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. See, Peter, James, and John, they had a cloud of three witnesses. Cloud, clouds in the scripture, they, they, they refer to a, a gathering together of some sort. And here, there is a cloud and there's three witnesses. Elijah, Moses, the Father, voice from heaven. Peter, James, and John act as their own three witnesses. So there's a whole multitude of witnesses here for themselves. But what about for us? Hebrews chapter 12 Verse 1 to 2 says this, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Transfiguration. Now I want to um, finish with the last point. The last point is that there is a promise of total transfiguration. Because we look, by, we look right now into the face of Christ by faith and not by sight. But of course there will come a day when our faith will be turned into sight. And what a day that'll be. Just before Jesus took his disciples up the mountain, he said this in verse 38. If you have it open, you can follow with me in verse 38 of chapter 8. It says, For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Jesus Christ, the Son of Man, the Son of God, is coming again, and he's coming again very soon. He came the first time to deal with sin, and the second time he is coming for judgment. He came the first time as a humble and lowly, suffering servant, riding on a donkey. He's coming a second time on a white horse 
the King of kings and Lord of lords, in all the glory of his Father, with the saints and all the holy angels, the clouds of heaven are going to be by his side. Revelation chapter 1 verse 7 says, Behold, he is coming in the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all tribes will wail on his account. Peter, James, and John were allowed to witness the glory of Jesus Christ on the mountain, and their faith became sight. This is a picture for us. One day, our faith will become sight. John himself, he saw this experience on the mountain, but then he gets another vision of Jesus Christ when he's on the island of Patmos. He's exiled for the faith of Jesus Christ, and he receives this vision, and he tells us what Christ looked like. He said, the hairs of his head were white like wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and his feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Transfiguration. Jesus gave us all these images to help us understand him, to help us understand the glory which the children of God will have with him when he comes again to get us. It says in 1 John chapter 3, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. This is our glorious hope, that at the end of days, God will bring a restoration of all things. He will take what is perishable and make it imperishable. He will take what is mortal and make it immortal. He will seize death by its jaws and swallow it up in victory. He will transfigure the entire face of the world. And in this way, the scripture will be fulfilled that was written, for the earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. What a picture. Transfiguration. This is Christianity. This is Christ. This is what he's doing in the world. This is what he wants to do in us. Take all of our weakness, all of our shame, all of our sin, and as we accept that that's the reality in our life, and then offer it back in total obedience to him and say, you do whatever you will with it, then he would transfigure that for his glory. So this is what I want to leave to us all this morning. It's a simple charge from Isaiah Chapter 45, verse 22, it says this, Look to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. And it's this, To me every knee shall bow and every tongue shall swear allegiance. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word, for it is a lamp to our feet and a light unto our path, and it teaches us and it shows us, and we can see, Lord, your glory in it. By faith, Lord, I pray you open our eyes wider to behold the glory of Jesus Christ. I pray, Lord God, that as we behold his glory and you fill us and fuel us with faith, that we would humbly offer our lives, ourselves, all that we have and all that we are to you in total surrender and obedience, that you might take it, Lord, and transfigure it for your glory. Father, we thank you for the Son. We pray that you'd fill us up now by the Holy Spirit and help us receive the word, that you might be glorified, and so that at least in this place, the knowledge of the glory of the Lord would cover this church as the waters cover the sea. Amen.